I invited someone to Pittman Park just recently who was not involved in any other congregation at the time. I thought this would be a good opportunity to engage uh, this person particularly in connection with the church. Uh, After I asked that they come and visit, um, we began a conversation And in that conversation, this person shared with me that they had attended another church and that the preacher there was focusing on money and they didn't like it at all. And I thought to myself, this is not good because we are about to start a stewardship series (laughs) at Pittman Park. And I thought, how is this going to work out? I didn't mention that we were going to have this stewardship emphasis in our church and I hoped and prayed that not only would the person come but that somehow there might be an understanding a deeper understanding about the importance of this issue for not only Pittman Park Church but every church and not about the individual church but about the love of God and the sharing of his ministry in fact it is a part of who we are this is our ministry funding plan This is the way in which we put our faith into action, the way in which we give unto the Lord by not only what we have, but who we are. There are static things that are around us. This sanctuary included, it seems very staid in its place. Uh, And the roof that you all have made possible that is now guarding us from the rains that might come, that we're praying for might come, And as we sit here, we could think to ourselves that what we've done is to put in place that which needed to be put in place, and that's it. And yet, that doesn't even begin to tell the story of who Pittman Park is as a church, as a congregation, and, and what we are called to do, because there is this vibrant spirit that is alive within us that seeks to move past anything that looks static here but moves us to care for others and to put our lives in service to him. And you can see this wherever you look, through the worship gatherings that we have on Sunday, through our gathering at Open Table on Wednesday night and the welcoming in always of new persons to just sit down and share in the fellowship of the church, to think about our children and youth ministry that are being guided even as I speak as uh, they grow in the love of Christ and to mature into the faith. Those who are Georgia Southern students among us, who are such a part, a vibrant part of this church already and have begun to make it their home. The food ministry that is represented in so many ways by person's attention to, to sharing with those that have deficits in their home in terms of providing for their families. And so food is essential to what is a part of the ministry of this church as we reach out to care for those that are in need. There is a disaster response team that is always eager to help whenever there is a need. And last week, you got to hear very briefly uh, from one of the directors of Morningstar Community as she thanked Uh, this congregation, for all that it had done in hosting the 70-plus people that were here after the evacuation of the Georgia shores. They came and 
we put them up for three days and fed them while they were here and they were overwhelmed by the hospitality of Pittman Park Church. These are active signings of the Spirit of God among us at work teaching us what it means to be his own people. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist faith, the Methodist movement, was absolutely a generous soul to his very being. He created a sense of generosity among all of these early ones who also called themselves Methodists. One statement by John Wesley that he made was fascinating. He said, when I have money, I get rid of it quickly, lest it find a way into my heart. That's an interesting thought and completely intimidating to most of us because we do not have the same concept of money. We allow for the idea that God sends us money in order to bless us, especially at certain times in our lives. But John Wesley was always suspect of becoming wealthy himself. Part of the problem there with him is that he was able to make a lot of money. He was one of the most intellectual guys in England at his time. His life spanned the 18th century. And over the course of that time, he was uh, an adjunct professor there at Oxford and guided the early beginnings of this small group that called themselves the Holy Clubbers or the, the Methodists that, that gathered at Oxford University. But he was astounding, not only in his, in his understanding of Scripture, but also he was a voracious reader of all things that were popular in that day, trying to take in an understanding of the world that would allow him to be able to minister to the culture, the people that he was reaching out to. He was fascinating. He would put together tracts that would be distributed things that shared about the scripture, about salvation, about the Methodist movement. And these would be distributed. Lest they be uh, distributed and not used, he would charge a pittance for those that really wanted one of these tracts. And so, unbeknownst to him, he was in the process of becoming very wealthy because these tracts went like hotcakes. People were so interested in reading what he had to say. And he made a lot of money in that way. It was uh, his way, though, of living out his life to divest himself of his, his supposed riches. And in fact, the story is told that at his death, the only thing that he really had to his name was one set that included a dinner knife and a fork and a spoon, one set at the table. You and I don't think of ourselves as being a part of a movement that would require us to give up everything, but John Wesley saw himself as being a part of that kind of movement. I think it is probably because he was so attentive to what Jesus was making him aware of. Do you remember where Jesus shared with his disciples in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and said, no one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. How is it that we manage this? 
you and I sometimes are playing the middle ground of what that might mean. Rather than being attentive to how God might use us, we, are, we have become very protective of what we have. John Ed Matheson is the now retired pastor of Fraser Memorial United Methodist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, a huge congregation there, and he led so, so well and now has a leadership training uh, online that he offers. But John Ed Matheson, a few years back, wrote a book entitled Treasures of the Transformed Life, and in it he talks about an experience that he had in his science class back in the eighth grade where a teacher uh, taught him and the entire class, of course, about the water cycle, the hydrologic cycle. It's a very simple idea, but fascinating to young scientists. The class listened and heard that when precipitation comes, it starts this chain reaction of events. The water travels through the streams and the rivers down to the lakes and the oceans. And then the sun takes over as it begins to bake this water and as it begins to evaporate into the atmosphere, the water vapor rises off of the water and into the clouds, it begins to condense once again around the dust particles that are there in our atmosphere. And what is it that happens next, of course? The precipitation comes again, it rains. No one knows exactly where this starts and where it ends. It's sort of like the question about who came first, the chicken or the egg. You and I might never figure that part of it out, and that's not so crucial. But what's crucial is for us to understand how it relates to this particular matter for us. You have seen pictures, perhaps, of the Jordan River. If you haven't, you need to Google that just to look at it. It is a beautiful river, not nearly so large as even the rivers that we have in Georgia. The Jordan River uh, is about the width of this sanctuary, most of its length. Um, in fact, in some parts where it does spread out a little bit wider, it's only knee-deep. You walk out, you can walk across the river, especially in those times of the year when it is a drought. The water begins up above the Sea of Galilee and trickles down into the Sea of Galilee, feeding it there, and then comes out south of the Sea of Galilee, tracing its way along this what has become a very fertile valley with all kinds of vegetation. You can imagine uh, shepherds leading their flocks close to this water or animals gathering beside the streams of the water in order to drink of the water that flows there. Uh, you can imagine perhaps John the baptizer coming out and standing in the water and calling people to come for baptism and Jesus himself coming at John's beckoning and that conversation between them as to who should be baptizing who. Can you imagine in your mind as the water runs down even further south than this area and deposits itself into what we call the salt sea or the dead sea? The reason it is called the Dead Sea is because all of the Jordan River flows into it and none of it flows out. In fact, the only thing that happens with the water in the Dead Sea is that the evaporation process begins there for another cycle 
that starts over this Middle Eastern community. That cycle is always going to be there. But if you look at the Dead Sea, you see only deadness. Years and years ago, I had the opportunity to go with a group to visit in the Holy Land. And one of the places that we went was the Dead Sea. Our guides told us to break off a chunk of the crust that was beside the Dead Sea. It was everywhere to be seen. And when we did that, he said, okay, now touch that to your tongue. We, of course, were, were very weary of this instruction, but we touched it to our tongues, and it was far beyond anything that could be called salt. It was so caustic. It burned us, and it stayed with us. The flavor of it, which was not quite salt, it was chemical of some sort, but it was profound that what had happened in this situation is that all of the deposits that were brought down by the Jordan River had stayed right there. The, the Dead Sea had done its best to wrap its arms around everything that it had brought its way, that had been sent its way, and to hold on to it as long as it possibly could. We were up in Tennessee about a month ago for the birthday of our granddaughter Ruby. Ruby turned five. And when we went into the house, she immediately showed us back to her room, a house that they had moved into earlier this summer. And we sat down with her and she had the toys lined up that she wanted to play with. And as I sat down, I realized I had a pocket full of change in, in my pocket. And I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to just get rid of this stuff. And so I reached in my pocket and pulled out all the change. And I said, Ruby, here's some change for you. And she looked with great interest and then ran across the room and grabbed her piggy bank. No, it was not her piggy bank. It was my piggy bank from when I was her age. A little green pig. I don't know why it was green, but it was green. This ceramic pig. And it had survived all of these years. I don't know exactly how she came by it. I guess her mother confiscated it at our house and took it to her. But she brought it up to me and I said, yeah, I said, you can put these coins inside of the piggy bank. And she put two or three in and then I still had more in my hand. And she looked at me and she said, how are we going to get them out? I said, you'll have to talk to your mama and daddy about that. There was no place on the bottom to open it up. And I wasn't about to tell her how I had learned to use a dinner knife in order to fish those coins out when I was about twice her age. She was going to have to figure this out. And we do. As parents, we have to figure things out because a piggy bank doesn't teach all of what we need to know about resources, does it? doesn't teach all that we need to know or be teaching our children. In fact, left to itself, it'll teach them the wrong message. It'll teach them the message that the more that they can get their hands on, the more that is theirs, the more they ultimately will have control of. And that's not the message of Christ at all. The message of Christ is to give of ourselves completely. Here, even the psalmist knows this. The psalmist starts out with the words, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications because he inclined his ear to me. And then, and only then, does he move into these words that were read this morning for us. What shall I return to the Lord for all his bounty to me? What shall I return to the Lord 
for all his bounty to me. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his peoples. This was the culture of tithing. It permeated all of Israel. It may not permeate us today, but in the day of of Jesus and in the day of, of those that led up to the time of Jesus, it permeated the culture of Israel. It was so much a part of of what they thought and what they did that, that every time they went to the temple, they would bring gifts in order to share at the altar of the Lord. They would bring money, of course, but also they would bring meat. They would bring a part of their, their flock or, or some valued animal in order to sacrifice unto the Lord. And if they were uh, pride, prideful and privy to have a a vineyard they would bring of the wine that they were making. And this is what's being referred to here. I will lift up the cup of salvation. I'll lift the cup up before it is ritually poured out onto the altar. I will lift up the cup of salvation before my God and thank him for all that he has provided for me. In Matthew chapter 6, once again, that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying here, something very important for us to get. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Thornton Wilder, that great author and playwright of a number of years ago now, wrote some beautiful plays that were honored with Pulitzer Prizes. He is one man who the world turned its attention to. And because of that, he was able to amass a certain amount of wealth because of that attention. He did not let this go to his head, but became a generous person as he had the opportunity. And he is said to have spoken these words on more than one occasion. Money is like manure. It's not worth a thing unless you spread it around encouraging young things to grow. Is that the way you think about money? Jesus told the parable of a man who came to several that he gave overseership of his property to. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one. The one with five talents became very busy in trying to see what he could do in order to raise more money for his master. The one with two talents did the same. The five turned to ten, the two turned to four. When the master came back, he was so pleased with these who seemed to get it that this was not their own money, that they were not to be protectors of it, but to invest it as God would wish it to be the case. But the one who had the one 
became very protective, even though he seemed to have the right idea of it not being his money. When he brought it, he said, I've protected it as you would want me to. And of course, the master was so disgusted with that line of thinking, as Jesus would be very disappointed in as well. If you and I spent all of our time like the Dead Sea trying to protect what had been given to us, for the Lord's sake even, we have been given resources in order to become a part of sharing with the world around us. Yesterday, we went to another birthday party. It was Sue's father's birthday. In fact, the party was yesterday. His birthday is today. He's 95 years old. And some of you will take very close interest in this because Sue's dad was the pastor of Pittman Park from 1968 to 1972. He was a younger man, a much younger man then. He is 95 years old now. And Sue's mother got in contact with me. She said, bring your guitar and lead us in a couple of hymns. Well, between the time that I heard that and got there, it had turned into, you'll lead us in hymns while we're eating. And I had no idea where I was going to go with this. And so I tried my best. I finally reverted to playing some old Peter, Paul, and Mary. Do y'all know the song, If I Had a Hammer? Oh, yeah. And, and so... There was one fellow that was sitting out there, another retired minister that was a resident at this assisted living center where we were having this gathering. And afterwards, Sue went up to speak to him and he said, that must be a Methodist hymn. I don't think that's in the Baptist hymnal. <laughs> and uh, she tried to explain to him that it was from church camp. But when I made, it, made my way over to this, this elderly gentleman who must have been about the same age as, as Sue's father, um, he said to me, he, he said, do you know that hymn, um, I am satisfied with Jesus? And I said, no, I, I don't think I do know that hymn. Um, he had been on staff in Tifton, Georgia, at First Baptist Church there for years and years, he, he said, that's a, that's a favorite hymn of mine. And I said, I just don't know it. He said, what's so interesting about it is how it goes and asks a question finally. Well, I couldn't wait to get home and see if I could find this. And so last night I was looking it up on Google and came across this hymn that he was referring to that was a favorite of his. Listen to this first verse. I am satisfied with Jesus, but a question comes to me. As I ponder o'er his goodness, is he satisfied with me? You get this, don't you? Listen once again. I am satisfied with Jesus, but a question comes to me. As I ponder o'er his goodness, is he satisfied with me? This is not about what we can gain in this life. This is about what we are willing to give. There are several questions that I have for us as we come to the close of our time together. 
when the offering plates are passed on Sunday morning, how do they make you feel? What are you thinking when they come your way? How is it that it affects your soul and your emotion? Do you feel guilty? Do you feel challenged? Do you feel joyful at the opportunity to participate? Here's another question. What does my checkbook, oh, we don't use checkbooks much anymore. What does my bank account say about my priorities? Have you looked at your bank account lately to see what it says? You might have looked for the balance, but I'm talking about looking for what you are purchasing and what you are spending your resources on. Does it represent well who you are and what you are about? Here's another question. Has there ever been a time that truth can be told, money or something that money can purchase was more important to you than God? Think about this. I can remember several times in my life that I was so distracted with a certain object that I had my eyes set on that I couldn't think about God or anything else. How is it with you today? Two more questions. The fifth question. The fourth question, rather. What can I offer? Have you asked yourself that lately? What truly can I offer to the work of God? And a final question. How can I live out the treasure of a transformed life? God wishes to use us. What can we offer for Christ's sake?